You're listening to the Steve Pinto Podcast, a podcast bringing you knowledge from God's Word, hoping to help you navigate through the changes in the world and the culture we live in today. Look out for Steve's new book, The Silent Exodus, now available on all platforms. You can purchase digital copies in the Apple Bookstore and Amazon.com. All right, so today we're going to be talking about the spiritual formation of healthy leaders, and it's founded in what theologically speaking we call the process of sanctification. And I would like to define and explain, first of all, to you the idea of sanctification. And then I would like to speak to you about some myths about spiritual formation. And then I want to debunk those myths so that we can learn a little more clearer about the spiritual formation of healthy leaders and also be better emotionally prepared to lead others. So to explain this, I would like us to think about the idea of justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification as it relates to the believer, and then more specifically as it relates to those of us who are in spiritual leadership or in church leadership. Now, to start off, I want to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. There it says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we, w- and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then in verse 3, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Okay, now let's go ahead and break that down a little bit as that's going to help us think through the idea of justification, sanctification, and glorification. So notice how the verse begins. It says, "Dear, dear friends, now we are children of God. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now this, this here is talking about the idea of justification. This is something that's already been settled. If you're a Christian, you are saved. You are a child of God. So when we speak of justification, we're talking about this idea that salvation is the free gift of God. And this is offered to all those who place their trust upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And all that is needed is for us to believe in what Christ has done for us on the cross. When this happens, we become children of God. But when we speak of justification, we're saying that salvation does not depend upon us, but rather upon Christ and his faithfulness. We have come to Christ and we are born again. We are forgiven and we are promised heaven. We call this justification. It's what the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans calls justification. And justification is only the beginning for a Christian. It is when we are saved and we are declared holy and we are declared righteous. This is what we call positional sanctification. Now, notice that in the verse. So first, dear friends, now we are children of God. I think this is a reference to justification. All right. Now, second, notice that the verse goes on to say, And what will be has not yet been made known. For we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay, now this is talking about the future, in the future tense, right? Justification was in the past tense. Now, here John is talking about in the future sense. And we're going to utilize the word glorification here. And he talks about something in the future, right, that has not yet been known. But we will know when Christ appears. When Christ returns, we're going to be like him and we shall see him as he is, it says in the passage there. So I think this is a reference to glorification. Glorification deals with our bodies. And when we are going to be glorified, we're going to be free from the presence of sin And it is when we will receive a resurrected, incorruptible body 
never to be vexed again by temptation or pain or sickness or sorrow. So glorification explains how we are going to be freed from the presence of sin and we are partakers with Christ in a glorified body. But this is where we want to focus our attention today, which is the third aspect of this passage. So notice that the passage now says, all who have this hope, which hope? Well, the hope of glorification and then the joy of justification. It says, all who have this hope in him, what do they do? They purify themselves just as he is pure. So those who have been saved, those who have been justified, and then those who have that future hope of glorification, what do they do in the interim? What do do they do in between justification and glorification? Well, John says they are purifying themselves just as he is pure. This is something that we're calling sanctification. And it's the idea that God not only wants us Um, uh, or God not only declares us holy and righteous, but he actually wants us holy and righteous. So sanctification is where God makes us um, righteous, holy, and set apart. I've heard this explained as experimental sanctification. It's where we are experiencing the idea of sanctification or the work of sanctification in our lives. Now, sanctification uh, comes from the Greek word aizgasmos, which simply means to be set apart or to be separated unto God. Sanctification is the process by which Jesus' thoughts become our thoughts. His love becomes our love. His will becomes our will. It is where we are being transformed from a carnal, fleshly man or a fleshly woman of sin into a spiritual woman or a spiritual man. So, you think of this. Sanctification is a free gift that we simply receive and embrace. Whereas, sanctification is the process that will outwardly reveal that we have indeed been saved. Justification before God does not depend upon us, but it depends upon Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, depends mostly on our willingness to submit to the Spirit and to submit to the Word of God. So, when we're justified, that is in the past tense, and when we're justified, our spirits are saved. We receive eternal life and we are partakers in Christ And we are freed from the penalty of sin. Um, But in the process of sanctification, our soul is being saved. We live Christ's life. And we are partakers of Christ. And we begin to experience freedom from the power of sin. So, I guess we could say... We can define sanctification like this. Sanctification is the ongoing process of spiritual growth through cooperation with the Holy Spirit by which the character of Christ is increasingly formed into an individual through intentional, ongoing training, participation, spiritual practices, experiences, and relationships ordained for that very purpose. Now, let me say that again. That was a long, unrunning sentence, our going sentence, but I think it's important for us to understand it. So, we're defining sanctification as follows. Sanctification is the ongoing process of spiritual growth through the cooperation with the Holy Spirit, by which the character of Christ is increasingly formed into an individual through intentional, ongoing training, participation, spiritual practices, experiences, and relationships ordained for that very purpose. Now, what I want to do with the rest of our time here is to think about sanctification 
in terms of that ongoing training and participation and spiritual practices and experiences and relationships ordained for that very purpose. But I want to think about them by debunking some myths about the spiritual formation of Christians and then more more specifically, the spiritual formation of leaders. So, number one, I want you to think about this. Number one, the spiritual formation of a healthy leader does not happen automatically, but intentionally. It doesn't happen automatically, but it happens intentionally. As leaders, as Christian leaders, we must move from good intentions to great intentionality. Let me say that again. We have to move from good intentions to great intentionality. And what I mean is this. There are many leaders who act as though spiritual growth is automatic once a person is born again or once they are justified. And they operate with no organized plan for, you know, for growth or for Bible reading. There is no strategy. There is no development. And we've seen this in churches as well. Maybe we are like this as individuals and as leaders because we come from churches that operate with no organized plan for following up on a new believer or there is no comprehensive strategy for developing new members unto maturity. What I'm trying to say is that we tend to leave our spiritual growth up to chance. We just leave it up to chance. And we assume that we as leaders are going to grow automatically into maturity by just attending church services. No more and no less. But obviously, you know that and I know that, that this is obviously untrue. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, here, the writer of Hebrews is making a reference about the maturity of a believer and how many times we can be a Christian for a long time, for a, a period of time. However, that period of time doesn't often lead unto maturity. And therefore, here the writer of Hebrews talks about this idea of needing milk, not solid food. The person, the Christian, has not been able to grow into a mature state where they can now digest a more solid teaching of God's word, but they're constantly taking milk. Um, just about a year ago, we, we had a conference here at church where I talked about this idea of moving unto maturity. And when they introduced me, I was going to preach that evening. When they introduced me, I walked onto the stage with pampers on and holding a bottle in my hand. Because I wanted that image. I wanted the people in my church, in that conference, to see how ridiculous it was for a grown man, you know, a grown man, to walk out in diapers and a bottle in hand. Because it just doesn't make sense. You know, a grown man ought to be able to feed himself. He ought to be able to utilize the restroom with, without anyone having to help him. Right? So that's the picture we have here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. We have a picture of leaders. We have a picture of Christians who have been Christians for a period of time. But they're still stuck with the milk. They're still stuck in diapers. They haven't matured. Someone always has to come and teach them the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And they've never matured unto solid food. And so... The reality is that there's millions of leaders 
who have grown older without ever growing up. The truth is that spiritual growth requires a commitment to grow. The leader must want to grow. The leader must decide to grow. The leader must make an effort to grow. Spiritual growth is intentional. We have to move from good intentions to great intentionality. Think about it like this. Birth is natural. Growth is organic. But death is automatic. That is to say that if you do not introduce intentionality into something that is organic or automatic, it is ultimately going to lead to death. And spiritual death can suddenly just show up in your life if you are not intentionally maturing or intentionally feeding yourself or growing from milk to solid food. Think about another passage in James chapter 1, verse 25. There, James, the brother of Jesus, says, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now think about this passage here. It's talking about this idea of looking intently. That is to say, to continue uh, looking into it, being intentional about it, right? Whoever looks intently, intentionality, right? Whoever looks uh, uh, continuously into the perfect law, that is the word of God. If you are intentional about continually looking into God's word and then you continue in it, he says, it will give you freedom. But it will give you freedom if you're not forgetting what you have heard. But instead, you're doing it. Because if you do this, you're going to be blessed, um, James says. Now think about this verse. It's saying if we study the word intently and we continue in it, we're going to receive freedom in our lives and we're going to receive a blessing in our lives if we do what the word is telling us to do. Not just hearing it, but if we do it. I mean, if we apply God's word into our lives, we're going to be receiving freedom from things that are binding us. And then we're going to be able to experience the blessing of God. Now, in the ancient Greek language, the word for looks intently, as we see it here in the passage, speaks of a penetrating examination so that a person would have to bend over and get a better look. That's what the Greek language is talking about there. A penetrating examination where a person has to bend over and get a better look. So James is stressing the idea of studying of um, getting into the word of God. But then he stresses the idea of not forgetting what you've learned to the point that you're actually doing what you are learning. So we're not neglecting the studying of God's word, but at the same time, we're not going to neglect the doing of God's word. Because if we do this, then we're going to uh, experience freedom from many things. So as we come to understand the word of God more and more, the word of God is going to reveal those things that are binding us. But as we study the word of God and we put it into application, then we are suddenly freed from those things that are binding us. You know, I was thinking about this. I was reading, you know, about a couple of years ago now, how Americans spend billions of dollars on exercise-related products and services. According to Club Fitness, uh, they report that 45.5 million people had a gym club membership uh, just a couple years ago, generating about $19 billion in business. 
So Club Fitness reports. 45.5 million people have a gym membership and it generates 19 billion dollars in business. So, um, you think about the treadmills, the ellipticals, the weight equipment, all these things in a gym, uh, you know, in a gym or, or some people, they even buy it, they, they take it home. And, and then you think about this idea of the money that we as Americans spend on gyms, gym membership, you know, um, or any other things that we utilize to get healthy, you know, and whether you're paying $40, $50, there, there are some gym memberships that are even $100 a month, you know, and then you add to that, people buy uh, workout clothes, they buy the right headphones, you know, uh, whatever. But Americans spend a considerable amount of money on gyms, on personal trainers, uh, just to get healthy. But then, as I was thinking about that, I also found out that according to medical news today, only 20% of people who actually have a gym membership actually use it. Only 20%. As a matter of fact, I think we just came up with a good business idea. If you want to make some money, open up a gym because you're going to have, you're going to have people just giving you money, you know, on a monthly basis and they're never going to show up. Only 20% are going, man. Let's open up. Let's get into business together here, man. We just, we just cracked the code right now. You know what I'm saying? It's only 20% of people who have a gym membership actually do it. So what does this tell us? It, tell, it tells us that there's a lot of people with good intentions, but not great intentionality. People aren't willing to pay the price for the health that they really want. I, I love how Paul uh, puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He tells his protege, right? His son in the faith, train yourself to be godly. I like how Paul thinks about training um, or maturity or sanctification as training. In fact, the word train in the Greek is the word gymnasio, which means to exercise vigorously um, by the body or by the mind. It could apply, uh, apply to both. In fact, gymnasio is where we get our word for gym or gymnasium. And Paul tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly. And I think it's important for us as leaders to think about godliness or sanctification um, in terms of a gym or training, um, taking that symbolism from the physical world into the spiritual world. We need to spiritually get into the gym. Um, similarly, in Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul said, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here Paul's talking about working out. Continue to work out your salvation. Don't just be happy with your justification. You got to work that out. You have to intently look into the perfect law. You have to learn how to be free from the sin that so easily entangles you and live and walk into the blessings that God has for you. So Paul's talking about spiritual growth here in this passage for people that are already saved. And, and then notice that he says, that he says, work out. He doesn't say work on your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. There's nothing that you can add to what Christ has done um, in terms of your salvation and your justification. However, your sanctification is very intentional. Getting filled is very intentional. So, whereas your salvation doesn't cost you anything, it is free, it is the gift of God, sanctification may cost you everything. So, think about that. Spiritual formation does not happen automatically, but it happens intentionally. But secondly, I want you to think about how your Spiritual formation as a leader, it does not require more activity, but it requires more availability. It doesn't require more activity. It requires more availability. Now, this is so important, especially 
in a time and age where so many things need to get done in order to accomplish ministry. Doesn't that feel like that as leaders? We have to get so many things done. And then sometimes we think that the only way to grow spiritually is by doing more stuff for God. But can we just turn that on its head? Can we think about making ourselves more available to Christ? You know, the classic example of this is found in Luke chapter 10. Luke 10 tells us the story of the sisters Mary and Martha who had invited Jesus to come over for dinner. And Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to what he had to say. But Martha, she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Right? And Martha asked Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. See, and when, when we get uh, agitated like this, um, when things like this happen, um, many times is because we are doing more stuff for Christ than listening to Christ. Right? When we get agitated by people, when we get bothered by others very easily, it, this is a sign that we're not spending time with Christ. And so Martha says, hey, don't you care? My sister's left me here. I'm doing all the work. And all she does is just sit there. Right? She's just sitting there. Right? So this is just a symptom that Martha, poor Martha, um, had, had uh, not spent time with Jesus. Or she had a misunderstanding of, you know, spending time with Christ. The, the idea of making herself available to sit at the feet of Jesus. And so when you get down to Luke 10, verse 41 and 42, can you hear Jesus's compassion and empathy and love? Notice, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. He's, he, he calls her by her name twice. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. And so I ask you as a leader, are you worried? Are you constantly worried and upset about many things? So hear your Lord say to you today, you are worried and upset about many things that you think need to get done, right? Activity. But notice verse 42, Jesus goes on. But one thing is needed. Say that with me out loud, wherever you may be listening to this. But one thing is needed. And then Jesus says, Mary has chosen what is better. So one thing is needed, and then one thing is better, Jesus said. One thing is needed, and then one thing is better. And then Jesus goes on to say, it will not be taken away from her. So Martha did nothing wrong in working hard for Jesus. That was good. Her problem was that she became distracted with much serving. And there are many people who become irritable and crabby in their service to the Lord like Martha, right? But Martha's real problem wasn't Mary. It was Martha. She had become distracted and had taken her eyes off Jesus. You know, there's people like Mary, those who know how to serve and also how to sit at Jesus' feet. And there are people like Martha People who diligently serve and with the best intentions, they serve God, but they lack one thing, as Jesus said, right? They, they lack that which is needed and that which is better, uh, to sit at the feet of Jesus. And then there are people who aren't doing either. <laughs> they are not even in the house with Jesus. They're not serving and they're not even sitting at the feet of of Jesus. And so this is a reminder to us that our spiritual maturity, what it requires many times is not us, uh, for us to do more stuff. I mean, that's important and it has its place. But Jesus says what is needed and what is better is to make ourselves available to Jesus. Make ourselves available to who? To Jesus, to make sure that we're sit, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, like another classic example of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're single and you're a leader, 
this is a chapter that you need to read like every day of your life, okay? Because it's so important. Uh, because it talks about just our devotion uh, to God or an undivided devotion to Christ. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is a chapter that Paul dedicates to the subject of marriage and to single living, right? So um, within that context of marriage and single living, a deeper look at that chapter actually carries an undertone on the subject of devotion, which is what we're talking about here, right? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, spending time with Jesus and pleasing Jesus. And so in the, in the chapter, Paul explains to the Corinthians that marriage requires a great deal of devotion to one another. So Paul says, if you're single, unless you're burning in passion, don't seek to get married so that you can fully devote yourself to God. Right? Let me say this again. Let me say this again. Paul says, if you're single, unless you're burning in passion, don't seek to get married so that you can fully devote yourself to God. That's what the passage says. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you get down to verse 29, notice this. This is one of the reasons why you don't read the Bible out of context. The verse standing alone in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 says, From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. <laughs> what, what the heck is Paul talking about? From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. Well, remember, the undertone of the passage is actually devotion. And so uh, once Paul under, uh, you know, explains that if you're married... Your devotion is divided to your wife and to your family and God, right? It's divided. But if you're single, you have a way in which you can be fully devoted in spirit and body to Christ. Well, he comes back in verse 29 and he basically says, but wait, hold on. Even if you're married, that should not be an excuse to be fully devoted to Christ. So in other words... You remember how when you were single and you were fully devoted to Christ, but now you're married and you say your devotion is divided? Well, it doesn't matter. You should still be devoted. There's always going to be challenges, relational challenges, time challenges, managerial challenges to our devotion to God. It doesn't matter. Whatever the excuse is, we must put Christ first. Because as Jesus said, this is the thing that is needed. This is the thing that is better. So, Paul is not encouraging the neglect of proper family responsibilities. But he's encouraging married couples to devote themselves first to God as a single person could, in body and spirit, devote themselves to the service of God and others. It means that we will not live as if our earthly family was all that mattered. But we're also going to live with an eye on service and with an eye on eternity. So by the time you get down to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 35, Paul says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in an undivided devotion to the Lord. And there it is, an undivided devotion to the Lord. So we're talking about the spiritual formation of healthy leaders. And we're talking about this idea that it doesn't require more activity, but it just requires availability, making yourself available to God. The point that Paul is making is that our devotion to God must be undivided, whether you're single or married. You know, the, the NIV, in the NIV, the word devoted or devotion is used three times in this chapter where Paul talks about, being de uh, devoting yourselves to prayer in verse five, devoting yourselves to what prayer in verse 34, devote yourselves to the Lord in both body and spirit in verse 35, live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul simply recognizes that when a person doesn't have family responsibilities, they are more free to pray. They are more free to devote themselves in body and spirit with an undivided devotion to the Lord. But still, it's not an excuse for those who are 
married. And, and by the way, this was the main reason why Paul considered the unmarried state a preferable state for people when they are serving the Lord. For Paul, being unmarried meant fewer distractions in his service to God. But tragically, many modern singles today, they are so distracted in their singleness because they're acting like they're married to a million people, man. You know, uh, focus on God and then wait for God to bring that special uh, person. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you that as you're serving God, that God would bring somebody else who is devoted and serving God along the way. And so that together, you guys kind of just crash into each other, meet into each other as you are serving the Lord. All right. So um, the spiritual formation of a leader does not require more activity, but it, re- it requires more availability. Let me give you one more here. Um, the spiritual formation of a leader is not measured by information, but it is measured by application. It's not measured by information, but it is measured by application. Um, And so the idea here is that maturity doesn't happen until we are actually applying the things that we are learning. Have you been feeling spiritually dry and tired and stuck? Well, there's an app for that. It's called application. (laughs) Just apply, apply what God is teaching. (laughs) You know, I I, I love how the scriptures, um, you know, they teach us how the word became flesh. Right. We can't just make Christ a boring text. Christ became flesh and the health Uh, Our spiritual health as leaders is going to be the result of application, not just information. And um, can I just encourage you by thinking about this in terms of wisdom, in terms of applying wisdom, moving from knowledge to wisdom. Wisdom can be defined as applied knowledge. Wisdom can be defined as what? Applied knowledge. So what we're saying here is that we need to be people who move from just knowledge of God and God's word to people who are actually applying God's word. Because this is when maturity is actually going to happen. Um, And so I want to give you a couple of passages to kind of help us through this. One of them is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. You know, uh, and I want you to think about this. The Bible is replete with raw, unedited life, right? The Bible is full of people who made good decisions and people who made bad decisions, people who were negative, people who were positive, people who obeyed God and people that didn't obey God. Now, as we read through the Bible, as we look intently into God's perfect law, Notice what Paul says about God's word in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The Bible was written. The stories of the Bible were written for what? The passage says there that it was written as warnings for us, as examples for us. So as we read scripture, as we look intently into scripture. We are learning from the experiences uh, and the lives of those who are in the Bible. Man, I can't tell you how many times Daniel has saved my ministry. As I read through Daniel and his commitment to not defile himself. I, I can't tell you how many times Daniel, for example, has challenged me to be a more excellent leader. You know, he was found to be 10 times better. As I read through Daniel, his life is an example uh, to me to be a leader of of excellence. Or I can't tell you how many times Joseph has saved my marriage, for example, and how Joseph teaches me to run away from sexual temptation. Don't play around with it. Just run. Right. 
Um, I can't tell you how many times Timothy, the young leader, has encouraged me, especially as I was a young pastor, to lead by example, to not let anybody look down upon me just simply because I was young, but to be an example to those I was leading. Uh, so you see how when we read through scripture, it's meant to be applied, applied knowledge. The things that happened to them, Paul says, happened as examples and as warnings. We, we, we read the Bible with the purpose of um, gaining that wisdom and applying it into our lives. Paul said something very similar in Romans 15, 4. It says, for everything that was written in the past was written to, to do what? To teach us. Wherever you may be, say it, teach us, to teach us, right? So um, everything that has been written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, I love this because it's saying that as we are being taught the scriptures into our lives, we're going to find encouragement in that. But then we also have to endure. And as, as that happens, then we are going to find hope. All right. Let me quickly just give you a couple more. All right. Number four. As healthy leaders, remember this. Spiritual formation does not happen in isolation, but it happens in interaction. Spiritual formation does not happen in isolation, but it happens in interaction. So a couple classic passages to think about here. Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Look, can I encourage you to look for mentors, to look for leaders in your life, to look for pastors, um, uh, spiritual directors in your life, people who you can look up to. Um, uh, just like, just like Barnabas looked for a Paul and then Paul generated a Timothy. You know, maybe you're a Barnabas that needs to go and look for a Paul. You know, someone that no one believes in. Or maybe you're a Paul that can look for a, a potential leader in Timothy and encourage them to move forward. You know, whether you're a Barnabas, a Paul or a Timothy you're either looking for someone or you're receiving from somebody. And as healthy leaders, we're not functioning alone, but we have someone from whom we are learning and then we have someone whom we are teaching. Um, and so spiritual formation does not happen in isolation, but it happens in interaction. It's how God designed it. You remember in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, it says that it was He, Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And why? Well, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So this means that Jesus has established different leaders in our lives. You know, in this case, we have these four offices, uh, maybe five, right? It's common, commonly described as the five-fold ministry. Some see this as five, some see this as four. The, you know, the idea of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then some people see the pastor-teacher as one together. But still, um, the, the idea here is that God has put spiritual leadership in the church. For what purpose? Well, to prepare God's people for works of service and so that the body of Christ may be built up. So this means that there is a sense in which spiritual formation cannot happen on your own. You need to be under somebody's teaching, under somebody's spiritual authority. And it is there where a lot of the molding and shaping and modeling and mentoring is going to take place. I guess you can call this a biblical concept of mentorship. Again, remember, there's a Barnabas, a Paul, and a Timothy. You're either, you know, speaking into somebody or somebody speaking into your life. Look, we see this dynamic in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, where it says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So we see here again, the Apostle Paul telling the young preacher and pastor Timothy 
that what he has learned from Paul, he is to then give to others, right? And, and the key thing here is the idea that the people that he's going to be mentoring, they have to be reliable and they have to be qualified, right? And there's something to say to that, that we're going to spend our time um, with people who are serious, with people who are going to uh, be be serious about spiritual mentorship. And there's something beautiful about that, right? When when we're gathered in a small group or in a relationship where people are serious about growth, when the mentor is serious about mentoring and then the mentoree is serious about receiving mentorship, there's something that happens there. Again, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We come now to number five, and number five is that spiritual formation is not mystical, but the result of discipline. Now, the classic example that I'd like to use here is from the life of King Saul. And the life of King Saul teaches us that spiritual formation cannot rely solely on spiritual experiences. We have been taught to seek and to expect experiences and moments instead of submitting to a God-given process. We've been very good at creating experiences for like the next generation and in our churches. But I think we have failed in teaching how to provide a God-given process of spiritual formation or even teaching people to submit to a God-given process of spiritual formation. But we cannot fall into the trap that King Saul fell into. We cannot confuse spiritual experiences with spiritual growth. We cannot confuse spiritual experiences with spiritual growth. You know, in the Bible, we read about King Saul's tireless hatred and pursuit of David. King Saul's heart was filled with jealousy and hatred, and he wanted to kill David. In fact, this is found about in 1 Samuel chapter 19. This is when an evil spirit came on Saul, and as he was sitting there in his house, he would sit with the spear in his hand. And as David, you know, the shepherd boy, would come and play the lyre for him, Saul would try to pin him against the wall with his spear, but David would elude him. And, um, and, you know, that's when King Saul then would begin to pursue David. Um, it is said there in that chapter that David elude, uh, eluded, you know, David from driving the spear into him. And that very night, David made his es- escape out into the desert and into the wilderness. And as he went out there into the wilderness, into the different caves and stuff, as he was hiding from King Saul, uh, King Saul's like hatred for David grew so much that he actually went out after him into the wilderness, into the desert. But the interesting thing there in chapter 19 is that he runs into a school of prophets or a group of prophets who were prophesying. So interesting. It's almost like a picture of Pentecost in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 20, 21, 22, and 23, around there. And as King David is pursuing David to kill him, it says that when he runs into this group of prophets, the Spirit of God came upon Saul and upon Saul's men. In 1 Samuel 19, 23, it tells us all about this spiritual experience. It says, So Saul went to Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naioth. So interesting, right? This passage. Here King Saul is following David to kill him, 
But then he has this amazing experience. And you would think, wow, the Spirit of God came upon him. He's going to be changed, right? King Saul had an amazing experience. But the thing is that after the experience was over and done with, he resumed his life of sin and hatred and jealousy. And he continued to pursue David to kill him, even after his son Jonathan tried to advocate for David. You see, what we learn is that a person can be affected by the power of God, resulting in amazing experiences, but not surrendered to the power of God. They're affected by the power of God, but they're not, they're not surrendered to the power of God, um, which leads to no change in their life, only amazing experiences. You see, a person can have a remarkable religious experience and yet have no change in their character or their spiritual formation. A person can be affected by the power of God, but not surrender to the power of God. Never say that the process is not important, that only experiences are important. No, there is a time and there is a place where we can experience God, you know, mystically perhaps, but it is the process that is important. I think we like experiences because they attribute a an apparent magical growth without the necessary discipline. Do you hear me? We like experiences because they attribute an apparent magical growth without the necessary discipline. All while we can bypass the necessary character building formation needed in the long haul. So seeking only spiritual experiences can be like seeking to win the lottery without having to go to work. You know, just I just want one awesome experience with God and then I'll never have to pray again. You know, remember this, a person that is only interested in spiritual experiences will become a fanatic. A person that is only interested in spiritual experiences will become a fanatic. That is to say, a leader with no depth. Now, he or she may display a sort of spiritual expression, but they're going to lack the genuine depth necessary for long-term endurance or even a healthy leadership. So in our spiritual lives, God has a process that he has designed for us to deepen our faith and to grow in character. A person that is interested in trusting the God-given process of character building will truly be changed from the inside out. And so we have to embrace God's plan, God's process, God's journey, and grow into maturity. All right, so we get rid of that that myth as well. The idea that spiritual formation is not mystical, but it is the result of discipline. And so let me speak into that idea of discipline with our sixth point today. So it's the idea that spiritual formation does not happen in a day. It happens on a daily basis. So here we come to the nitty gritty, right? This is what it's all about. Spiritual formation is about our commitment to grow on a daily basis. It doesn't happen in a day. It happens on a daily basis. There's a couple of verses that we can look into. Like in Luke 9 verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. What? Daily and follow me. Right. So the idea of denying yourself, the idea of carrying your cross, right, and dying to self, not just deny yourself, but dying to self. This is something that we do on a daily basis. This is the words of Jesus. Right. Carry your cross daily. Right. And the picture of the cross is the idea of dying to self, denying yourself. If you want to be if you want to move from just a believer to a disciple, this is something that you do on a daily basis basis, right? Jesus is saying, whoever wants to be my disciple, deny, die on the daily, right? If you want to be my disciple, 
deny and die on the daily, right? And then I like what Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So it doesn't happen just in a day, right? There's a commitment that we are making to Christ. And the more we're committed to that daily practice of spiritual formation, then the more we are going to uh, experience freedom in our lives from sin, but then also we're going to be able to lead from a place of health. And then I love how spiritual formation has a way of impacting every area of our lives. That, that is why this is something that is done on a daily basis. I like to think about Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where it tells us you know, G, about Jesus' growth. Remember, that's the passage that says that Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God, and in favor with men. I love how spiritual formation and spiritual maturity affects every aspect of our lives. Not just one, but every aspect. Um, so you'll notice how Jesus was growing in wisdom. This means he was growing psychologically. He grew in stature. There was physical growth. It says he grew in favor with God. This is spiritual growth. And then he grew in favor with men. This is so sociological growth. And so I like this idea that spiritual formation invites us into every aspect of our life on a daily basis, on a daily basis. And so as we bring this to a conclusion, can I encourage you to establish a daily discipline whereby which you are spending time in prayer and in reading the word of God? You can do this by journaling. You can bring some tools into a time of prayer and a time of reading God's word. Spend some time. I don't know. You can start with 10 minutes a day, then grow into 20 minutes a day. Maybe taking a step further and going into an hour a day or so, depending on you know your schedule or depending on your desire to grow. But uh, you know some things that you're going to want to bring into this time where you're free of distractions, where you're turning off your phone. Where, uh, it, one of the things that you want to bring is your Bible. Because uh, as we said, it is through the Word of God that God is going to bring freedom into our lives. And we're going to move from just knowledge into wisdom. And have a reading plan. Establish a reading plan. You know, version um, on the internet provides tons of different reading plans. But as leaders, we need to have a reading plan that we're going through where we're reading uh, systematic, uh, systematically through the word of God. Maybe a system by which you're reading through the Bible each year. Maybe that'll work for you. Um, so look for a plan that's going to help you read through the scriptures. And then can I encourage you to bring a journal and bring a pen? Um, why bring a journal and why bring a pen? So that you can um, write down your prayers or you can write down whatever it is that God is doing in your life. Something that I like to teach leaders is something that I learned from Pastor Wayne Cordero, which is to journal soap. Soap, S-O-A-P. So as you have your daily reading plan, as you're going through your um, daily reading guide through the Bible, he encourages people to journal by using the acrostic SOAP, S-O-A-P. S stands for scripture, O stands for observation, A stands for application, P stands for prayer. So this is something that you can do on your journal. When you read your daily reading, uh, uh, I want you to pick one or two verses that stand out and write it verbatim on your journal. This is what you're going to do for S. You know, S stands for scripture. Then under O, once you write that one verse or two verse out of your main reading, then you're going to make some observation. So the intention here is to listen to what the scripture may be saying or what those verses are saying, right? You're just observing. Um, and then 
maybe think in terms of what are some interpretations, right? Don't think in terms of application yet. This is just what are my observations from this one verse or from these two verses or from my reading. Then thirdly is the application. Now you can think about, okay, what measurable application can apply? Can I apply into my life today, right? This is when we move from knowledge into wisdom, right? So you write the scripture, you write your observations, then you write what application am I going to uh, apply into my life? And then P stands for prayer. Then this means that you write out your prayer to help you focus on your prayer. So you're going to take some time or you're going to write out your prayer based on what you've read. So hopefully this helps you establish a discipline by which you are uh, embedded and you are giving yourself into that daily basis in every aspect of your life whereby you can grow into freedom and into maturity. Thanks for listening. Tune in to next week's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. Look out for Steve's new book, The Silent Exodus, now available on all platforms. You can purchase digital copies in the Apple Bookstore and Amazon.com.